The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, and welcome to The Exchange, the Reuters Breaking Views podcast on business, finance, and economics. I'm Swaha Patnaik, Global Economics Editor of the Commentary Team, and it's my pleasure today to welcome Abebe Emro Selassie, the Director of the International Monetary Fund's Africa Department. Abebe, welcome, and thanks for joining us from Washington. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me, Swaha, and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Absolutely. Um, Your job is rather daunting and involves overseeing the IMF's work in more than 40 countries, I believe, across sub-Saharan Africa. The pandemic has been a global shock and the IMF's world GDP forecast for this year is dire, even after a recent upgrade. What's even worse, perhaps, is that the fund predicted in its world economic outlook that nearly 90 million people may fall below the $1.90 a day income threshold of extreme deprivation this year and it expects GDP for your region, sub-Saharan Africa, to contract 3%. That's the most on record. I've seen the forecast from the IMF, and that's expecting growth to rebound next year. But how concerned are you, Abebe, that the rise in inequality between countries advanced and emerging will take far longer than that to reverse? Thank you, Swaha. Yeah, I mean, indeed, this is an extremely, extremely uh, difficult period for uh, the vast majority of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, really, all the countries. And our concern really, uh, first and foremost, of course, is about the people that are being uh, impacted directly. Uh, this is a pandemic which is posing a you know, very serious threat to people's health, but also the economic uh, effects, as you just noted, uh, in the region has been uh, really or, or, or something we've never seen, uh, at least going back uh, 50 years. And what's striking also is that how no country is being left unspared. Um, you know, small island economies uh, that are more middle-income countries that generally rely on tourism um, and travel and tend to weather commodity shocks and other cross-cutting shocks in the region, they have been brutally, brutally impacted by the region. But uh, by the same time, you know, also kind of, of course, the larger economies in the region, South Africa, uh, Nigeria, Angola, Ethiopia, they're all all, uh, feeling the brunt of the crisis. Uh, And the poor in these countries are also feeling the pinch because uh, as countries have had to close uh, their borders, suppress business activity uh, to to limit the effects of the pandemic. Uh, the effect has been to impact exactly those people that rely on uh, informal activities uh, to earn a living. So very worried, very worried. Um, two reasons for hope. I mean, one is really so far, so far, uh, and there's absolutely no room for, for complacency, but in the vast majority of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, the scale of the health threat has been contained, the, you know, uh, and that, in, you know, is due to, uh, in no small part, to measures countries have had to take, have taken, you know, bravely and early to suppress the disease. So credits to, uh, to uh, African governments for having uh, done that. And then the second uh, bright uh, area of hope is that, you know, it's a region of also tremendous opportunity. Um, I think the near-term challenges will be very profound and difficult, but uh, it 
got some very young dynamic population, scope to use technology to, uh, to tap into the ever-growing uh, labor force uh, to engender strong recovery is really just tremendous. Um, so what's needed is really a concerted period of uh, transformative reforms to change the, the economic models uh, that countries have been relying on. And also, of course, a period where uh, external concessional financing will be will have a very important role to play to facilitate a strong recovery. Thank you. I think we'll deal with all of those issues in a bit more detail, but let me start by one of the the problems perhaps that is more acute for African countries than say in the developed world. We've seen budget deficits surge in Europe and the United States, but there's less scope to let rip in sub-Saharan Africa, where many countries have to balance the serious immediate problems they face about helping their populations through this pandemic with the need that's always there for them to ensure debt sustainability or to protect external stability, guarantee social stability and preserve long-term credibility. What is the IMF's advice to you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is a disparate number of countries, but in general, about how to walk the fine line between ensuring the economy is receiving the support it should and managing the other considerations. You know, uh, this year really is about um, protecting lives and livelihoods. I mean, that has to come first and foremost. So we've been um, encouraging countries to spend more, to do whatever uh, it takes to protect lives and livelihoods. Um, and of course, not just saying that, but also we've stepped forward to provide uh, financing like we've never uh, done before, as uh, Kristalina has been arguing for the continent as a whole, uh, for Africa as a whole. Uh, we've provided about $25 billion uh, this year so far in financing, uh, some more to come in the coming years, in the coming months. Um, this is about 10 times the amount of financing we give in a, in a typical year uh, to the region. So that gives you a sense of the scale of financing we are putting behind our uh, commitment, our message to, to do whatever it takes to, to, uh, to uh, protect lives and livelihoods. By the same token, as you noted, uh, there are, of course, countries that are uh, were on the verge of uh, debt sustainability challenges and now have tipped over and are facing debt challenges. So uh, we are working with those countries to find a path forward that will protect um, uh, the countries from having to do too much adjustment, uh, the burden of dealing with this debt falling uh, on the poor, the vulnerable, uh, and you know uh, those, those and getting creditors to provide as much debt relief uh, as uh, countries need uh, to try and strike uh, that balance, but primarily to avoid uh, the burden of adjustment not falling um, on the on the countries, and then. Uh, for those countries that are where the debt situation is still um, sustainable, you know, to find uh, to chart a way forward that will keep debt sustainable while they continue to address much needed development spending through uh, revenue mobilization, through much more concessional financing. So these are these are broadly the ways in which uh, we are uh, we are um, working with countries. But uh, you know, even within that context, of course, um, the availability of financing uh, has has limited the amount to which countries can uh, can allow deficits to widen. Um, 
so you know one number that comes through very clearly in our uh, world economic outlook and our regional economic outlook is how um, the nine percentage points or so increase in uh, uh, fiscal deficits we've uh, seen in advanced countries contrasts with only a six percentage point um, uh, in widening in fiscal deficits in emerging market countries and just three percentage points in uh, sub-saharan countries uh, on average so uh, the fact that countries cannot tap uh, external markets uh, the fact that uh, the size of domestic uh, markets is limited has indeed constrained uh, the fiscal policy response let me, I mean, you've had more than two decades of experience of working at the fund, and one of the things you just alluded to um, just now was the, the way in which the fund has reacted to COVID, the speed with which you've moved, the facilities you've made available. Perhaps just to give us some sweep, I mean, there was a time when the fund was associated with imposing certain things called the Washington Consensus on countries and going in and demanding all sorts of things. How what, what has the fund learned from the lessons of, say, the global financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis that are coming to the fore and being deployed now? And where do you think the fund will go in its evolution, particularly to help the countries in your region? As MD Lagarde used to say, uh, this is not uh, your grandfather's uh, IMF. Um, and of course, you know, reflecting, uh, you know, the changed world we're in, we... Um, are very cognizant, you know, much more cognizant, of course, of, of uh, trying to strike the right balance between addressing medium uh, and long-term sustainability issues and in the near term, trying to protect lives and livelihoods. Now, um, to be fair, uh, we've always tried to make our policy uh, time and context specific. Um, uh, so uh, this is a time which is incredibly different, right? Incredibly uh, something that we haven't seen in uh, in uh, several generations. Uh, kind of challenge that uh, is overwhelming advanced countries, much less uh, much less uh, low income countries with uh, with uh, limited resources and uh, institutions that are not as strong. So um, we've had to cut our cloth to 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 the circumstances and uh, of course uh, respond accordingly. So that's what we're trying to do. And do you see possible paths of evolution? I mean, you're at the heart of uh, the IMF in Washington now about the thinking and where it's going. I mean, obviously, there's a, a lot of the war chest that the IMF has at its disposal still available. But if this goes on for another year, the needs of these countries, a lot of countries will be perhaps more prolonged and protracted than we expected. What do you think the fund needs to think about in terms of how it's developing and evolving? I mean, you know, uh, we um, are not in this just for the short haul, but really uh, to support countries in, in um, rebuilding their economies and uh, in making sure there is as robust a recovery as possible uh, in the coming years. So, yes, we will be um, right alongside uh, our member countries in the coming years uh, also. We don't see this just as a 2020 affair. Far from it, far from it. Uh, indeed, uh, to our thinking, um, it is exactly in, in, in uh, periods uh, like this that the IMF, which is the classic uh, counter-cyclical institution, needs to step up and increase its financing role uh, in, in, in our countries uh, uh, until they've rebuilt their economies, until they can go back to relying on uh, private and uh, other uh, forms of financing uh, to, to uh, address their development needs. By the same token, you know, really important for me to stress that there's no amount of external financing that is going to be sufficient to solve 
the, the needs our countries have. A lot of the needs actually arise from, uh, uh, for, you know, a lot of the need for recovery, that is, arise from, you know, pursuit of policy reforms that are needed. Huh? Um, so before the crisis, it was very clear that countries uh, needed to do a lot more domestic level mobilization. They've been investing quite a lot on infrastructure, quite a lot in health and education, but not doing as good a job of capturing uh, the rate of return on all of this investment through their tax systems, you know, by charging higher utility tariffs uh, so that electricity companies can continue to, to um, maintain and invest in an expanded capacity. So all of that uh, reform agenda that was pressing before the crisis is even more pressing now. Uh, second, um, given the limited resources available, it makes it even more important to make sure that uh, this investment uh, that we are selecting, the spending allocations that are being done, continue to be as well scrutinized as possible uh, to make sure that public resources are used effectively. Third, of course, um, you know, the task of uh, revenue mobilization, the task of uh, convincing people that money is being well spent also requires bringing a lot of transparency into government spending and making sure that, you know, uh, governance is improved upon. Um, so, you know, that, that whole task of building a social contract is also really an important endeavor that uh, countries need to pursue. And, you know, the whole gamut of reforms to, you know, facilitate more green investments, to facilitate more uh, more uh, digital uh, promotion, both in the use of public services, but also across the economy, a host of uh, transformative reforms that will be needed. Um, and subject to that, I think our institution and the international financial community at large needs to support African countries by providing concessional support. Right. I mean, that support will be particularly important given some of the, the scale of the the gap, the potential financing gap that the IMF sees for sub-Saharan Africa, I think the estimate was that the shortfall could be nearly $300 billion if private financial inflows remained below pre-pandemic levels. You've mentioned in the conversation that just now that the debt, you have made efforts, the debt relief has been extended and so countries have been allowed to defer payments and things like that. Something more will be needed given the gravity and the, of the calamity that we are experiencing and is particularly acute for the poorest nations. Do you think debt will also have to be written off in the coming six to nine months? So, you know, um, our approach to debt is basically uh, country specific. And uh, so what we do is always, but, you know, I think uh, uh, even more important at a time like this, uh, do very uh, realistic and well-grounded um, uh, debt sustainability analysis yeah? that will allow us to uh, say, you know, if countries need uh, debt relief or not. Uh, where debt is clearly unsustainable, Absolutely. I mean, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't um, delay the starting the discussion on debt relief, uh, and we've done that already. You know, by signaling to the authorities that that is a case that they will need uh, debt relief. Uh, countries like Zambia, for example, um, uh, but also by the same token, uh, I wouldn't underestimate just how much uh, uncertainty there is right now about the future. Um, trajectory of uh, growth, uh, revenues, uh, important variables to to figure out if, you know, the chances in which debt is sustainable or not. So in those cases, though, where it's clear that debt is unsustainable, 
uh, it's important that we move uh, forward uh, uh, and uh, facilitate that debt restructuring for countries. And this is why we've spent so much time in recent weeks um, trying to engender support uh, for uh, both uh, initiatives like the DSSI, which will give some breathing room uh, for countries in the near term, some fiscal space, uh, while we assess that sustainability uh, um, outlook for countries, but also the need for uh, reforms of the broad debt architecture uh, uh, globally. Um, this is something that has needed attention for some time, and I think there's no moment like the current one where uh, a lot of progress can be made um, uh, in this area. So we're, we're pushing for that also. As uh, one politician said, never waste a good crisis or a bad crisis, but yes. Um, you mentioned Zambia. Perhaps we could get into the specifics of the Zambian situation, which is um, perhaps one that is relevant for a wider range of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. The lending that has been going on in recent years has not just been by the normal sort of creditors groups and we've seen uh, say China and Chinese institutions playing a larger role and that makes sometimes that triangulation a little trickier about who is giving debt relief, where is it going to, uh, how much is the private sector going to chip in, how complicated are these discussions relative to say 20-25 years ago when we were talking about HIPIC, the heavily indebted poor country initiative? So uh, I think what is different is that uh, for Sub-Saharan Africa in the past, uh, financing has largely come from multilateral institutions and um, the you know bilateral creditors, official sector creditors, uh, or entities in those countries underwritten by bilateral creditors, and reliance on private financing has been much more limited. We now have um, uh, an environment where. Uh, Private markets have rightly been playing a much bigger role in financing Sub-Saharan Africa's uh, development needs. Uh, the, all of the Eurobond issuances, placements of uh, uh, private placements of bonds, uh, you know, syndicated loans, etc. Uh, also, of course, a new player like China that has emerged on the scene. Uh, China has been a very, very important development partner, important financier uh, of Sub-Saharan Africa in recent years. Um, um, so we have a much more complex environment, uh, creditor environment, creditor landscape. Uh, and um, though I, what I would underscore is that this is new in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa notably, but not as new elsewhere in the EM universe. And it's something that as an institution, of course, we have been uh, navigating through uh, in other countries also. Um, but the, the upshot right now for countries like Zambia, but the other uh, creditors in Sub-Saharan Africa is, you know, first and foremost, what's needed is uh, to ascertain whether debt is sustainable or not. Um, and when it's clearly unsustainable, I think countries need to begin that conversation with their creditors uh, on uh, debt relief, on financing that can come from that. Um, and subject to them advancing that uh, discussion, we, we, of course, will also uh, help countries by providing financing and also uh, the economic program that they need uh, to come out of their difficulties. Absolutely. I mean, one of the issues that's coming up, I think, is, uh, and the IMF research shows this very clearly, is something like 16 countries were at high risk of debt distress or were already in distress well before COVID struck. Now, encouraging people to repair the roof when, you know, the economy is going great guns, the sun shining can be a really hard task. Everybody sort of waves that I've got national sovereignty flag and doesn't really want to listen to outside advice and take 
difficult decisions like the reforms you outlined, which are multi-year and may even you know, outlast one single government's political cycle. It's a really hard situation. And we keep coming back to this perennially. We, we had the HIPIC initiative and a lot of that was written off. There was a lot of goodwill. And yet we seem to come back to this situation. You were mentioning the debt, uh, sort of the architecture, if you like, which sort of a, is a holistic vision of this. How do you think we tackle this perennial problem? First and foremost, I mean, you know, uh, these kind of um, difficulties that can sovereigns face um, in terms of uh, repaying their debts uh, on time uh, is not unique to sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you know, we have to look at the record of um, countries uh, like Argentina, Turkey, uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, etc., around the world. Second. I wouldn't underestimate just how much progress that has been made uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa also over the last 20, 25 years uh, in terms of advancing um, the quality of institutions, uh, the, the quality of human capital uh, in the region, uh, development outcomes have improved tremendously in the vast majority of countries. I'm not saying this to, to imply that things are perfect, far from it, you know, institutions, um, they remain weaker than elsewhere and much more progress can be made. But, you know, it's a region where there's been a huge transformation along many dimensions, political, social, economic. Um, so it's not as if the debt relief that was provided went to waste, huh? far from it. I mean, it has allowed countries to progress uh, quite a bit. And then a the third point I would make is that, you know, um, Yes, there were quite a lot of countries that were facing debt pressures and needed a period of uh, consolidation before the before the pandemic. But nobody could have foreseen a shock like this, right? Uh, and planned for it, quite frankly, also. So I wouldn't underestimate kind of the severity of this uh, of this shock. Really, has been its force majeure, uh, and and uh, so uh, that internalizing that also is really important as we as we uh, assess uh, the way forward um, so uh, I think taking into account all of these things I think you know uh, this is kind of the, the the difficult side of the ledger but on the other side again I want to underscore kind of it's really a region of tremendous potential tremendous potential you know by um 2030 in 10 short years half of the annual increase in the you know global labor force entrance will come from sub-saharan africa so one in two new workers in the global economy will be sub-saharan african uh, the opportunity that that creates for um you know, investment demand, uh, consumption demand is just tremendous and on a global scale. Um, so you, capital, um, uh, people looking for market for their goods are going to be gravitating to sub-Saharan Africa. And um, also kind of the fact that the region can still uh, leapfrog many industries also offers tremendous opportunities. Uh, so that's why kind of, um, you have to see things in the totality uh, in terms of assessing uh, economic outlook and uh, and uh, contextualize the current uh, difficulty. I mean, 
as you say, I mean, COVID has brought a great change in, in how we live, how we work, how we interact with each other. And I mean, have you seen changes perhaps in sub-Saharan Africa in the public policy field, like perhaps in the field of digitalization or otherwise, that may actually provide some impetus once we get through this really difficult time? I hesitate, hesitate to say silver lining because it, it really is such a big dark cloud, but are you seeing those sort of things, developments that would encourage you for where people will end up after this? From afar, yes. <laughs> I think lots of conversations we've been having with policymakers, business people from the region. Yes, indeed. I mean, the importance of, uh, of uh, uh, technology uh, in, in the economy of the future is, I think, crystal clear to people. But also, also, and really very encouragingly, we have seen governments um, using uh, this, including for the emergency now. So I think uh, the Novisi uh, uh, system in Togo is a very interesting example of where the government used the electoral register and people's cell phone information to be able to provide them with um, cash transfers uh, in the context of this uh, pandemic uh, when uh, because you don't have social safety nets you can rely on um, that you know in a, as you would in advanced countries to roll out unemployment programs or uh, social support programs uh, you saw this uh, use of this uh, in in togo for example but you know many other kind of examples like that where uh, where you are seeing um, uh, where you are seeing technology allowing a far more nimble response, uh, far more uh, nimble uh, intervention than before. And I think, you know, you are beginning to see uh, conversations to that effect. Uh, in the early flashes of the COVID pandemic, when um, there was a lot of concern about, uh, uh, you know, exchanging money because you could have the virus on cash notes, etc. Uh, I had a minister approaching us um, asking if uh, if uh, we could help them kind of with with uh, going to complete a mobile money payment system in the country. You know, that's the kind of thinking that this is uh, this is provoking. Uh, the pandemic has also provoked. But I think you know the broader lesson of the importance of technology absolutely has been first and foremost. Uh, uh, the, the one takeaway in this crisis. Absolutely. Um, our time is unfortunately far too limited and we could ask you a lot more questions, but Abebe, it's been um, great to have you on the podcast and it's been a really interesting Thank conversation. You. Thank Likewise. you for taking the time out during a busy period and for joining us from Washington. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to this episode of The Exchange, which was produced by Freddie Joyner. You can find other interesting conversations like this one on your favorite podcast platform or through our website, breakingviews.com.